0: Section 11 of the American Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Smith. The American Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. The Axton Letters. By William McCarg and Edwin Balmer. Part 2. Why, what is it, Mr. Tront? The girl cried. This is so taken up with the wreck and the death of Lawler, the psychologist touched the last letter, that there is hardly any more mention of the mysterious man. But you said since Mr. Axton has come home, he has twice appeared and in your room. Miss Waldron, please, give me the details of his first appearance, or visit, I should say, since no one really saw him, Mr. Trond, the girl replied, still watching the psychologist with wonder. I can't tell you much, I'm afraid. When Mr. Axton first came home, I asked him about the mysterious friend, and he put me off with a laugh and merely said he hadn't seen much of him since he last wrote. But even then I could see he wasn't so easy as he seemed. And it was only two days after that, or nights, for it was about one o'clock in the morning, that I was awakened by some sound which seemed to come from my dressing room. I turned on the light in my room and rang the servant's bell. The butler came almost at once, and, as he is not a courageous man, roused Mr. Axton before opening the door to my dressing room. They found no one there, and nothing taken or even disturbed, except my letters and my writing desk. Mr. Trent, my aunt who has been taking care of me since my mother died, "'was aroused and came with the servants. "'She thought I must have imagined everything. "'But I discovered and showed Mr. Axon "'that it was his letters to me "'that had appeared to be the ones "'the man was searching for. "'I found that two of them had been taken "'and every other typewritten letter in my desk, "'and only those had been opened "'in an apparent search for more of his letters. "'I could see that this excited him.' exceedingly, though he tried to conceal it from me, and immediately afterwards he found that a window on the first floor had been forced, so some man had come in, as I said. Then last night, it was early this morning, Mr. Tront, but still very dark, a little before five o'clock, it was so damp, you know, that I had not opened the window. In my bedroom, which is close to the bed, but had opened the window of my dressing room, and so left the door between open. It had been closed and locked before, so when I awoke, I could see directly into my dressing room. Clearly, of course not at all clearly, but my writing desk is directly opposite my bedroom door, and in a sort of silhouette against my shaded desk light, which he was using, I could see his figure. A very vague, monstrous-looking figure, Mr. Tront. Its lower part seemed plain enough, but the upper part was a formless blotch. I confess at first that enough of my girl's fear for ghosts came to me to make me see him as a headless man, until I remembered how Howard had seen and described him with a coat wrapped around his head. As soon as I was sure of this, I pressed the bell button again, and this time screamed, too, and switched on my light, but he slammed the door between us and escaped. He went through another window he had forced on the lower floor with a queer sort of dagger knife, which he had broken and left on the seal. And as soon as Howard saw this, he knew it was the same man, for it was then he ordered me not to interfere. He made off after him, and when he came back he told me he was sure it was the same man. This time, too, the man at your desk seemed rummaging for your correspondence with Mr. Axton. It seems so, Mr. Tront, but his letters were all merely personal, like these letters you have given me, yes? Amazing. Tront leaped to his feet, with eyes flashing now with unrestrained fire, and took two or three rapid turns up and down the office, if I am to believe the obvious in- inference from these letters. Miss Waldron, coupled with what you have told me, I have not yet come across a case, an attempt at crime, more careful, more cold-blooded, and, with all more surprising, a crime? An attempt at crime, Mr. Tront? cried White and startled girl. So there was cause for my belief that something serious underlay these mysterious appearances? Cause. Tront swung to face her. Yes, Miss Waldron. Criminal cause. A crime so skillfully carried on, so assisted by unexpected circumstance, that you, that the very people against whom it is aimed, have not so much as suspected its existence. Then you think Howard honestly believes the man still means nothing? The man never meant nothing, Miss Waldron, but it was only at first the plot was aimed against Howard Axton, Tronk replied now it is aimed solely at you the girl grew paler how can you say that so surely mr Trant? carl demanded without investigation these letters are quite enough evidence for what i say mr carl Trant returned would you have come to me unless you had known that my training in the methods of psychology enabled me to see causes and motives in such a case as this which others untrained cannot see. You have nothing more to tell me which might be of assistance." He faced the girl again, but turned back at once to Carl. "'Let me tell you, then, Mr. Carl, that I am about to make a very thorough investigation of this for you. Meanwhile, I repeat, a definite daring crime was planned first, I believe against Howard Axton and Miss Waldron, but now—' I am practically certain it is aimed against Miss Waldron alone. But there cannot be in it the slightest danger of intentional personal hurt to her. So neither of you need to be uneasy while I am taking time to obtain full proof. But, Mr. Trant, the girl interrupted, Are you not going to tell me? Y- you must tell me what the criminal secret is that these letters have revealed to you. You must wait, Miss Waldron, the psychologist answered kindly, with his hand on the doorknob, as though anxious for the interview to end. What I could tell you now would only terrify you, and leave you perplexed how to act while you were waiting to hear from me. No, leave the letters, if you will, and the page from the illustrated news, he said suddenly as the girl began gathering up her papers. There is only one thing more you said you expected an interruption here from howard axton mr carl is there still a good chance of his coming here or must i go to see him miss waldron telephoned to me in his presence to take her to see you afterwards she left the house without his knowledge as soon as he finds she is gone he will look up your address and i think you may expect him very good then i must set to work at once He shook hands with both of them, hurriedly, and almost forcing them out his door, closed it behind them, and strode back to his desk. He picked up immediately the second of the four letters which the girl had given him, read it through again, and crossed the corridor to the opposite office, which was that of a public stenographer. "'Make a careful copy of that,' he directed, "'and bring it to me as soon as it is finished.' A quarter of an hour later, when the copy had been brought him, he compared it carefully with the original. He put the copy in a drawer of the desk, and was apparently waiting with the four originals before him when he heard a knock on his door, and opening it, found that his visitor was again young Carl. Miss Waldron did not wish to return home at once. She has gone to see a friend. So I came back, he explained, thinking you might make a fuller statement of your suspicions to me than you would in... Miss Waldron's presence. Fuller in what respect, Mr. Carl? The young man reddened. I must tell you, though you already may have guessed, that before Miss Waldron inherited the estate and came to believe it her duty to do as she has done, there had been an understanding between us, Mr. Tront. She still has no friend to look to as she looks to me. So, if, So if you mean that you have discovered through those letters, though God knows how you can have done it. Anything in Axton which shows him unfit to marry her, you must tell me. As far as Axton's past goes, Trault replied, his letters show him a man of high type, moral, if I may make a guess, above the average. There is a most pleasing frankness about him, as to making any further explanation than I have done, but good lord, what's that? The door of the office had been dashed loudly open, and its still trembling frame was by a tall, very angry young man in automobile custom, whose highly collared, aristocratic-looking features Trump recognized immediately from the print in the page of the Illustrated London News. "'Ah, Mr. Carl, here too? The village busybody!' The newcomer sneered with a slight accent which showed his English education. "'You are insufferably mixing yourself in my affairs,' he continued, as Carl, with an effort, controlled himself and made no answer. "'Keep out of them. That is my advice. Take it. "'Does a woman have to order you off the premises "'before you can understand that you are not wanted?' "'As for you,' he swung toward Trant. "'You are Trant, I suppose.' "'Yes, that is my name, Mr. Axton,' replied the psychologist, "'leaning against his desk. "'The other advanced a step and raised a threatening finger. "'Then that advice is meant for you, too.' I want no police, no detectives, no outsider of any sort interfering in this matter. Make no mistake, it will be the worst for anyone who pushes himself in. I came here at once to take the case out of your hands. As soon as I found Miss Waldron had come here, this is strictly my affair. Keep out of it." "'You mean, Mr. Axon, that you prefer to investigate it personally?' The psychologist inquired. "'Exactly. Investigate and punish.' but you cannot blame Miss Waldron for feeling great anxiety even on your account as your personal risk in making such an investigation will be so immensely greater than anyone else's would be. My risk, certainly you may be simply playing into the hand of your strange visitor by pursuing him to aid at any other's risk. Mine, for instance, if I were to take up the matter, would be comparatively slight beginning perhaps by questioning the night-watchmen and stable-boys in the neighborhood, with a view to learning what became of the man after he left the house, and besides, such risks are a part of my business. Axton halted. I had not thought of it in that light, he said reflectively. You are too courageous, foolishly courageous, Mr. Axton. Do you mind if I sit down? Thank you. You think, Mr. Trant, that an investigation such as you suggest would satisfy Miss Waldron, make her easier in her mind, I mean? I think so, certainly. And it would not necessarily entail calling in the police. You must appreciate how I shrink from publicity. Another story concerning the Axton family exploited in the daily papers. I had no intention of consulting the police or of calling them in, at least until I was ready to make the arrest. "'I must confess, Mr. Trant," said Axton, easily, "'that I found you a very different man from what I had expected. "'I imagined an uneducated, somewhat brutal, perhaps talkative fellow, "'but I find you, if I may say so, a gentleman. "'Yes, I am tempted to let you continue your investigation "'on the lines you have suggested. "'I shall ask your help. "'I will help you as much as in my power. "'Then let me begin, Mr. Axton.' with a question pardon me if i open a window for the room is rather warm i want to know whether you can supplement these letters which so far are the only real evidence against the man by any further description of him and Trant, who had thrown open the window beside him undisturbed by the roar that filled the office from the traffic laden street below took the letters from his pocket and opened them one by one clumsily upon the desk I'm afraid I cannot add anything to them, Mr. Trent. We must get on, then, with what we have here. The psychologist hitched his chair near to the window to get a better light on the paper in his hand, and his cuff knocked one of the other letters off the desk onto the window sill. He turned hastily but clumsily and touched but could not grasp it before it slipped from the sill out into the air. He sprang to his feet with an exclamation of dismay and dashed from the room. Axton and Carl, rushing to the window, watched the paper, driven by a strong breeze, flutter down the street until lost to sight among wagons, and a minute later saw Trant appear below them, bareheaded and excited, darting in and out among vehicles at the spot where the paper had disappeared, but it had been carried away upon some muddly wagon-wheel or reduced to tatters, for he returned after fifteen minutes' searched, disheartened, vexed, and empty-handed. It was the letter describing the second visit, he exclaimed, disgustingly, as he opened the door. It was most essential, for it contained the most minute description of the man of all. I do not see how I can manage well now without it. Why should you? Carl said in surprise at the evident stupidity of the psychologist. Surely, Mr. Axon, if he cannot add any other details, can at least repeat those he had already given— of course, Trump recollected. If you would be so good, Mr. Axton, I will have a stenographer take down this statement to give you the least trouble. I will gladly do that, Axton agreed, and when the psychologist had summoned the stenographer, he dictated without hesitation the following letter. The second time I saw the man was at Calcutta, in the Great Eastern Hotel. He was the same man I had seen at Cairo, shoeless and turbaned, at least i believed then that it was a turban but i saw later at cape town that it was his short brown coat wrapped around his head and tied by the sleeves under his chin we had at the great eastern two whitewashed communicating rooms opening off a narrow dirty corridor along whose whitewashed walls at a height of some two feet from the floor ran a greasy smudge gathered from the heads and shoulders of the dark-skinned white-robed Native servants who spent the night sleeping or sitting in front of their master's doors. Though Lawler and I each had a servant also outside his door, I dragged a trunk against mine after closing it, a useless precaution as it proved his Lawler put no trunk against his, and though I see now that I must have been moved by some foresight of danger, I went to sleep afterward quite peacefully. I awakened somewhat later in a cold and shuddering fright, oppressed by the sense of some presence in my room, startled up in bed and looked about my trunk, was still against the door as I had left it. And besides this, I saw at first only the furniture of the room which stood as when I had gone to sleep, two rather heavy and much scratched mahogany English chairs, a mahogany dresser with swinging mirror and this spindle-legged four-post canopy bed on which I lay. But presently I saw more. He was there. A dark shadow against the whitewashed wall beside the flat-topped window marked his position. As he crouched beside my writing-desk and held the papers in a bar of white moonlight to look at them, for an instant the sight held me motionless, and suddenly, becoming aware that he was seen, he leaped to his feet, a short, broad-shouldered, bulky man, sped across the blue and white straw matting into Lawler's room, and drove a door to behind him. I followed, forcing the door open with my shoulder. Saw Lawler just leaping out of bed in his pajamas, and tore open Lawler's corridor door through which the man had vanished. He was not in the corridor, though I inspected it carefully, and Lawler, though he had been awakened by the man's passage, had not seen him. Lawler's servant, pretty well dazed with sleep, told me in blank and open mouth amazement at my question that he had not seen him pass and the other white draped hindus gathering about me from the doors in front of which they had been asleep made the same statement none of these hindus resembled in the least the man i had seen for i looked them over carefully one by one with this in mind when i made a light in my room in order to examine it thoroughly i found nothing had been touched except the writing desk and even from that Nothing had been taken. Although the papers had been disturbed, the whole affair was as mysterious and inexplicable as the man's first appearance had been, or his subsequent appearance, for though I carefully questioned the hotel employees in the morning, I could not learn that any such man had entered or gone out from the hotel. That is very satisfactory indeed, Trance gratification was evident in his tone as Axton finished. It will quite take the place of the letter that was lost. There is only one thing more. So far as I know now, in which you may be of present help to me, Mr. Axton, besides your friend Lawler, who was drowned in the wreck of the Gladstone, and the man Beasley, who Miss Waldron tells me is in a London hospital, there were only two men in Cape Town with you who'd been in Cairo and Calcutta, at the same time you were. You do not happen to know what has become of that German freight agent, Schultz? I have not the least idea, Mr. Tront. Or Walcott, the American patent medicine man? I know no more of him than of the other. Whether either of them is in Chicago now is precisely what I would like to know myself. Mr. Tront and I hope you will be able to find out for me. I will do my best to locate them. By the way, Mr. Axton, you have no objection to my setting a watch over your family home provided I employ a man who has no connection with the police. With that condition, I think it would be a very good idea," Axton assented. He waited to see whether Trant had anything more to ask him. Then, with a look of partially veiled hostility at Carl, he went out. The other followed, but stopped at the door. We, that is, Miss Waldron, will hear from you, Mr. Trant. he asked with sudden distrust. I mean, you will report to her as well as to Mr. Axton. Certainly, but I hardly expect to have anything for you for two or three days. The psychologist smiled as he shut the door behind Carl. He dropped into the chair at his desk and wrote rapidly a series of telegrams which he addressed to the chiefs of police of a dozen foreign in American cities. Then, more slowly, he wrote a message to the Saric Medicine Company of New York, and another to the Nord Dutcher Lloyd. The first two days of the three Trant had specified to Carl passed with no other event than the installing of a burly watchman at the Axton home. On the third night this watchman reported to Miss Waldron that he had seen and driven off without being able to catch a man who was trying to force a lower window. And the next morning, within half an hour of the arrival of the Overland Limited from San Francisco, Trunk called up the Axton home on the telephone, with the news that he thought he had at last positive proof of the mysterious man's identity. At least he had with him a man whom he wanted Mr. Axton to see. Axton replied that he would be very glad to see the man if Trant would make an appointment in three-quarters of an hour at the Axton home. Trant answered, and forty minutes later, having first telephoned young Carl, Trant with his watchman, escorting a stranger who was broad-shouldered, weasel-eyed, of particularly alert and guarded manner, reached the Axton doorstep. Carl had so perfectly timed his arrival under Trant's instructions that he joined them before the bell was answered. Trant and Carl, leaving the stranger under guard of the watchman in the hall, found Miss Waldron and Axton in the morning room. "'Oh, I am uh, Mr. Carl again,' said Axton sneeringly. "'Carl was certainly not the man you wanted me to see, Trunt. "I, "'The man is outside,' the psychologist replied. "'But before bringing him in for identification, "'I thought it best to prepare Miss Waldron, "'and perhaps even more particularly you, Mr. Axton,' for the surprise he is likely to occasion. A surprise? Axton scowled questioningly. Who is this fellow? Or rather, if that is what you have come to find out from me, where did you get him? Tront. That is the explanation I wish to make, Tront replied, with his hand still upon the knob of the door, which he had pushed shut behind him. You will recall, Mr. Axon, that there were but four men whom we know to have been in Cairo, Calcutta, and Cape Town at the same time you were. These were Lawler, your servant Beasley, the German Schnaltz, and the American Walcott. Through the Saric Medicine Company, I have positively located Walcott. He is now in Australia. The Nord-Dutcher Lloyd has given me equally positive assurance regarding Schultz. Schultz is now in Bremen. Miss Waldron has accounted for Beasley, and the Charing Cross Hospital corroborates her. Beasley is in London. There remains, therefore, the inevitable conclusion that either there was some other man following Mr. Axton, some man whom Mr. Axton did not see, or else that the man who so pried into Mr. Axton's correspondence abroad and into your letters, Miss Waldron, this last week here in Chicago was Lawler, and this, I believe, to have been the case. Lawler? The girls and Carl echoed in amazement, while Axton stared at the psychologist with increasing surprise and wonder. Lawler? Oh, I see, Axton, all at once smiled contemptuously. You believe in ghosts, Tront. You think it is Lawler's ghost that Miss Waldron saw. I, I did not say Lawler's ghost. "'Trant replied, a little testy. "'I said Lawler's self in flesh and blood. "'I am trying to make it plain to you. "'Trant took from his pocket the letters "'the girl had given him four days before "'and indicated the one describing the wreck. "'That I believe the man whose death you so minutely "'and carefully described here in this letter as Lawler "'was not Lawler at all. "'You mean to say that I didn't know Lawler?' Axton laughed loudly. Lawler, who had been my companion in sixteen thousand miles of travel? Tront turned it, as though no reopened the letter, into the hall, then paused once more, and kindly faced the girl. I know, Miss Waldron, he said, that you have believed that Mr. Lawler has been dead these six weeks, and it is only because I am so certain that the man who is to be identified here now will prove to be that same Lawler that i have thought best to let you know in advance he threw open the door and stood back to allow the irish watchman to enter preceded by the weasel-faced stranger then he closed the door quickly behind him locked it put the key in his pocket and spun swiftly to see the effect of the stranger upon Axton. that young man's face despite his effort to control it flushed and paled flushed and went wide again but neither to carl nor the girl did it look at all like the face of one who saw a dead friend alive again i do not know him axton eyes glanced quickly furatively about i've never seen him before why have you brought him here this is not lawler no he is not lawler tron agreed and at his signal the irishman left his place and went to stand by axton but you know him do you not You have seen him before. Surely I need not recall to you this special officer Burns of the San Francisco Detective Bureau. That is right. You had better keep hold of him. Sullivan, and now, Burns, who is this man? Do you know him? Can you tell us who he is? Do I know him? The detective laughed. Can I tell you who he is? Well, rather, that is Lord George Albany who got into Claude Shelton's boy in San Francisco for $30,000 in a card game. That is Mr. Arthur willer who came within a hair of turning the same trick on you, Stu in New York. That, first and last, is Mr. George Lawler, himself, makes a specialty of cards and rich man's sons. Lawler? George Lawler? Carl and the girl gasp again. But why? In this affair, he used his own name, the detective continued, is more than I can see, for surely he shouldn't have minded another change. He met Mr. Howard Axton in London, Trant suggested, where there was still a chance that that the card cheating in the Sussex guards was not forgotten, and he might at any moment meet someone who recalled his face. It was safer to tell Axton all about it, and protest innocence. Howard Axton, the girl echoed, recovering herself at the name. Why, Mr. Trant, if this is Mr. Lawler, as this man says, and you believe, then where is Mr. Axton? Oh, where is Howard Axton? I'm afraid, Miss Waldron, the psychologist replied. that Mr. Howard Axton was undoubtedly lost in the wreck of the Gladstone. It may even have been the finding of Howard Axton's body that this man described in that last letter. Howard Axton drowned then this man mr george lawler's specialty being rich man's sons said the psychologist i suppose he joined company with howard axton cause he was the son of nimrod axton possibly he did not know at first that howard had been disinherited and he may not have found it out until the second mere axton's death when the estate came to miss waldron and she created a situation which at least promised an opportunity It was in seeking this opportunity, Miss Waldron, among the intimate family affairs revealed in your letter to Howard Axton, that Lawler was three times seen by Axton in his room, as described in the first three letters, that you showed to me. That was it. Was it not, Lawler? The prisoner, for the attitude of Sullivan and Bums, left no doubt now that he was a prisoner, made no answer you mean mr Tront, the eyes of the horrified girl turned from lawler as though even the sight of him shamed her that if howard Axton had not been drowned this this man would have come anyway i cannot say what lawler's intentions were if the wreck had not occurred the psychologist replied for you remember that i told you that this attempted crime has been most wonderfully assisted by circumstances lawler cast ashore from the wreck of the gladstone found himself if the fourth of these letters to be believed, identified as Howard Axton, even before he had regained consciousness, by your stolen letters to Howard which he had in his pocket. From that time on, he did not have to lift a finger, beyond the mere identification of a body. Possibly Howard Axton's, as his own. Howard had left America so young that identification here was impossible unless you had a portrait in Lawler's undoubtedly had learned from your letters that you had no picture of howard his own picture published in the news over howard's name when it escaped identification as lawler showed him that the game was safe and prepared you to accept him as howard without question he had not even the necessity of counterfeiting howard's writing as howard had the correspondence habit of using a typewriter only two possible dangers threatened him first was the chance that if brought in contact with the police, he might be recognized, you can understand, Miss Waldron, by his threats to prevent your consulting them, how anxious he was to avoid this, and second, that there might be something in Howard Axton's letters to you which, if unknown to him, might lead him to compromise and betray himself in his relations with you. His sole mistake was that when he attempted to search your desk for these letters, He clumsily adopted once more the same disguise that had proved so perplexing to Howard Axton, for he could have done nothing in that would have been more terrifying to you. It quite nullified the effect of the window he had fixed to prove by the man's means of exit and entrance that he was not a member of the household. It sent you, in spite of his objections and threats, to consult me, and most important of all, It connected these visits at once with the former ones described in Howard's letters, so that you brought the letters to me, when, of course, the nature of the crime, though not the identity of the criminal, was at once plain to me. I see it was plain, but was it merely from these letters? These typewritten letters, Mr. Trant? cried Carl credulously. From those alone, Mr. Carl, the psychologist smiled slightly. Though a most elementary primer fact of psychology, perhaps you would like to know, Lawler. Trant turned, still smiling to the prisoner, just wherein you failed. And as you will probably never have another chance, such as the one just passed, for putting the information to practical use, even if you were not, as Mr. Burns tells me, likely to retire for a number of years from active life, I am willing to tell you. The prisoner turned on Trant his face, now grown livid with an expression of almost superstitious questioning. Did you ever happen to go to a light opera with Howard Axton, Mr. Lawler, asked Trant, and find after the performance that you remembered all the stage settings of the piece but could not recall a tune. You know you cannot recall a tune, Lawler while Axton perhaps could whistle all the tunes but could not remember a a scene. Psychologists call that difference between you and Howard Axton a difference in memory types. In an almost masterly manner, you imitated the style, the tricks and turns of expression of Howard Axton in your letter to Miss Waldron describing the wreck, not quite so well in the statement you dictated in my office but you could not imitate the primary difference of Howard Axton's mind from yours. That was where you failed. The change in the personality of the letter writer might easily have passed unnoticed as it passed Miss Waldron had not the letters fallen into the hands of one who, like myself, is interested in the manifestations of mind, for different minds are so constituted that inevitably their processors run more easily along certain channels than along others. Some minds have a preference, so to speak, for a particular type of impression. They remember a sight that that they have seen, they forget the sound that went with it, or they remember the sound and forget the sight. There are minds which are almost wholly ear minds, or eye minds, In minds of the visual or eye type. All thoughts and memories and imaginations will consist of ideas of sight, if of the auditory type, the impressions of sound predominate and obscure the others. The first three letters you handed me, Miss Waldron—the psychologist turned again to the girl—were those really written by Howard Axton as I read through them. I knew that I was dealing with what psychologists call an auditory mind, when in ordinary memory he recalled an event he remembered best its sounds but i had not finished the first page of the fourth letter when i came upon the description of the body lying on the sand a visual memory so clear and so distinct so perfect even to the pockets descended with sand that it startled and amazed me for it was the first distinct visual memory i had found as i read on i became certain that the man who had written the first three letters who described a german as guttural and remembered the americans as nasal could never have written the fourth would that first man the man who recalled even the sound of his midnight's visitors shoulders when they rubbed against the wall failed to remember in his recollection of the shipwreck the roaring wind and roaring sea the screams of men and women the crackling of the fire they would have been his clearest recollection but the man who wrote the fourth letter recalled most clearly that the sea was white and frothly. The men were palled and st- staring. "'I see, I see, Carl,' and the girl cried as, at the psychologist's bidding, they scanned together the letters he spread before them. "'The scepterfuge, by which I destroyed the second letter of the set, after first making a copy of it, you did it on purpose?' "'What an idiot I was!' exclaimed Carl." was merely to abate the possibility of mistake. Trant continued without heeding the interruption. The statement the man, this man dictated as it was given in terms of sight assured me that he was not Axton. When by means of the telegraph I had accounted for the present whereabouts of three of the four men he might possibly be, it became plain that he must be Lawler. And finding that Lawler was... Badly wanted in San Francisco, I asked Mr. Burns to come on and identify him. And the stationing of the watchman here was a blind also, as well as his report of the man who last night tried to force the window? Carl exclaimed. Trant nodded. He was watching the complete dissolution of the swindlers, effrontery. Tront had appreciated that Lawler had let him speak on uninterrupted, as though after the psychologist had Shown his hand, he held in reserve cards to beat it, but his attempt to sneer and scoff and contemn was so weak when the psychologist was through that Ethel Waldron, almost as though to spare him, arose and motioned to Trant to tell her whatever else he wished in the next room. Trant followed her a moment, obediently, but at the door he seemed to recollect himself. I think there is nothing else now, Miss Waldron he said, except that I believe I can spare you the reopening of your family affairs here. Burns tells me there is more than enough against him in California to keep Mr. Lawler there for some good time. I will go with him now, and he stood aside for Carl to go in his place into the next room. End of The Axton Letters by William McHarg and Edwin Balmer Part 2 Recording by John Smith